0: Good morning. We are here. I'm excited. And I brought my breakfast today because I started, I stopped at Go Get Em, the new Go Get Em Tiger, they're over in Culver, because our coffee machine is broken. And so we're waiting for it to be sent back to us. And so I stopped and got an oat milk latte, which was delicious, and their breakfast sandwiches. Because here's the thing. One, I love the idea of making you all listen to me eat right now but that's what's gonna happen, is I'm gonna talk about how much I like sandwiches. Specifically, breakfast sandwiches are incredible. You can, I don't know if you can see, we're not gonna zoom in on the sandwich, but uh, it's over medium. So there's enough yolk that it's like still, it's just, oh, I love sandwiches. Some people measure their lives in sunsets, in years, in love, or cups of coffee. Mmm. Mmm. I measure my life in sandwiches. Mm. See, I'm just going to enjoy this. The bacon right now, Mm. the egg, the cheese. Don't let my wife know I'm eating cheese because technically I'm lactose intolerant. Oh, I love sandwiches. It all started. My love of sandwiches, My counting my my life in sandwiches began in high school. My first high school job was at McAllister's Deli with their famed sweet tea and their McAllister's Club. I used to make this tea every single day and these sandwiches. And then with my shift sandwich that I got every single day would regularly create different Frankenstein sandwich concoctions. I fell in love with the art of sandwiches. And then, in my wife and I's first year of marriage, living in Seattle, we came in contact with paseo. Paseo's marinated, slow-roasted pork soldier, soldier shoulder, with cilantro and pickled jalapenos and caramelized onions, crisp romaine. Like this was, when I think about our first year of marriage, I don't think about like where we lived or like what all the, I I think about that Paseo sandwich and the fact that Aaron has a clone of it now that we will make for everyone once the COVID lets up. And then when we moved back to Springfield to finish up with my undergrad, working at Mama Jean's Natural Market and Deli, it's basically Whole Foods in Southwest Missouri, where uh, we made tuna melts every single day or I learned about tofu in sandwiches. Seasoned with nutritional yeast, with veggies and veganese, whatever that was. I still don't know what veganese is. I just, I, I love sandwiches. Every, my life goes in sandwiches. Or when we lived in Reno, and we went to Brewer's Cabinet every single year for my birthday. And I pulled together all of the ingredients I could to make what is called, the, what I referred to as the breakfast burger. It was a pretzel bun with candied bacon, big old burger, barbecue sauce, coleslaw, lettuce, tomato, jalapenos, a giant onion ring. And I would eat it and then slip into a food coma for the next 12 months, basically in time to wake up and go back and do it again. Even after my first sermon at Collective Church, I got the father's office, uh, their office burger. The last Saturday before quarantine was a family date where we went over to Echo Park and went to Con B and got their pork katsu sandwich. And every single day of COVID has been me making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Maybe not every day, but it's regular enough. My rainbow PB and J's for Emma, which is grape, peach, and strawberry jelly all in a line. And then it's like a rainbow. My life is measured in sandwiches. There is a, look at this, I'm like three minutes in, I'm still talking about sandwiches. What is going on here? There is a genius to sandwiches. One, it's portable food. Like right there, egg and cheese and bacon and this incredible bread. It, it just, that I would have had a plate up here tried to bring it with me. But even more than that, is the way that when you bring all of those things together into this one little bite-sized piece of bread and meat and veggies or cheese or whatever it might be, it just brings out all of these flavors of contrasting and complimenting in ways that you couldn't have had if you maybe had it on a plate. Now, most of you think when we call it the sandwich, this concoction, we call it a sandwich because of the history that we've been told of the sandwich being invented in the 18th century by Earl of Sandwich, who wanted something to eat while he was playing his card games. Now, whether it's anti-Semitism or Eurocentrism, that's not where the sandwich began. It actually began somewhere around the first century in the generation before Jesus with Rabbi Hillel the Elder. Rabbi Hillel, the elder, argued that during the Jewish Passover meal, that these elements of the bitter herbs, the sweet apples, and the lamb were meant to be eaten not as just separate things, but as a sandwich in between two pieces of matzah bread. To this day, this is part of the Passover tradition. They refer to it as the Hillel, as in Rabbi Hillel's name, or the Korech. Now, Rabbi Hillel argued that all of these various ingredients of the apple chutney and like the horseradish, the bitter herb, and then the lamb, all in between these two pieces of matzah bread were meant to come together, not only in their flavors, but in what they symbolized to become something better than what they were apart. And as those symbols and flavors came together, something both profound and delicious was brought forward. Now, why am I talking about sandwiches? As we continue in Mark's gospel, I like to think that Mark was a foodie and he brought his stomach to the gospel. Why? Because Mark knows sandwiches and he shows his knowledge of sandwiches, not on a plate, but in his gospel. Throughout the book of Mark, throughout his gospel, we find Mark regularly using this unique literary technique. Nobody else uses it in all of their gospel accounts. Only Mark uses it. It's this literary technique that Bible nerds now refer to as the Markin sandwich where what happens is as Mark moves through his gospel, he tells one story, but he cuts it in half and then places another story in between the the two halves of that first story, the Markin sandwich. And by telling these two stories now interlaced with one another, he brings out new understandings beyond what those stories would have captured by themselves. One scholar talks about the Markin sandwich, Tom Wright. He writes, the flavor of the outer story adds zest to the inner one. And the taste of the inner story is meant to permeate the outer one. Mark is trying to bring together the flavors and elements and components of two stories to unify them in ways that maybe we wouldn't see before. And in in, in light of that, to help us see the scripture, to see the text in a new way. And so maybe you remember, we, we've noticed the Mark and Sandwich back in our Entering the Tension series in Mark 4, or even last week, I didn't know, mention it, but the story of Jairus and the bleeding woman, the story of Jairus is cut in half of him coming to Jesus for his daughter and then them finally going to his daughter with the story of the bleeding woman. And so the whole thing was where we, like we did last week, meant to see those two stories as one full little unit, one little sandwich for us to chew on. And so today, we come to another one of Mark's sandwiches. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go a verse or two or three at a time, just kind of chewing on it as we go, maybe pointing out a few things. And then once we get to the end, we're going to, like my wife and I do, back when we used to go on dates and like go eat really good places, as you eat the meal, and then at the end, you talk about how all the flavors and the things paired and came together. So we're going to do that at the end, not with just flavors, but what this means for us today. So... Mark and sandwich, let's bite in. But first, why don't we pray and then we'll move forward. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Mark uh, and just how genius he is in his literary work that yes, inspired by your spirit, but at the same time, displays this profound insight into this artistic technique that he uses to drive us to your inspired truths in a way that, Uh, maybe couldn't have come through any other way. And so I pray you'd help us to bite into the sandwich today. Help us to see why Mark is laying these stories together and that we might discover what it means to follow you in a new way. You know, we pray, amen. Well, as always, the notes are there on the chat, but let's jump in with what we could call the top slice of bread in Mark chapter six, beginning in verse seven. And it says that Jesus called the 12 disciples, And he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So let's just stop here. What's going on? Is Jesus is calling the 12 disciples who, interestingly, up to this point have always, always been, uh, what is it, confused or cowardly or complaining or just outright not knowing who Jesus is. It was less than a chapter ago that they were asking, who is Jesus? Even though they'd been with him for about a year. But here there's a big change in the program. Something has shifted and these disciples are now being given the authority of Jesus as they are sent as they're being sent out you can even notice the strange language that that uh, mark uses here that he called the disciples and he began to send them out that mark doesn't just say he sent out the 12 he began mark is hinting at something that Jesus is beginning here what he continues to do to this day sending out his disciples but let's keep rolling what, what are they uh, in being sent out? What are they to do? He continues in verse eight, that Jesus charged the disciples to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So Jesus is doing two things in these kind of rules for the ministry that he's setting before his disciples. The first is he's calling them to an explicitly simple mission. No extravagant lifestyle, no jumping to the better house down the street when the opportunity opens. Really the way you could summarize this is no preachers in sneakers. Those that are called to be messengers, heralds of the kingdom of God are meant to embody a simple lifestyle. Their mission is shaped by a simplicity of their possessions, but also dependent on the generosity of others. And this isn't just for the disciples, this continues today. In 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle Paul writes that the Lord commanded, here he's quoting from what we're looking at today, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so this continues even in churches today. This is why I'm here doing this and able to do so, not giving, you know, I don't have a side job. This is my main work is pastoring and preaching is us continuing in Paul's Uh, calling that's based off what Jesus gave to the disciples here. Now, this simplicity of mission is true for pastors and preachers, but it's also true for disciples of Jesus, that all of us are called to some spiritual way of material simplicity in the way that we live our lives. This is part of what it means. Now, that's the one thing that he's doing in what Jesus has laid forward. The second is here that the 12 disciples are being commissioned by Jesus to what you could call prophetically cosplay as the 12 tribes of Israel. They are wearing in their garb and dress what the Israelites wore during their exodus. And so this prophetic cosplaying, this dress up game that Jesus is doing as he sends them to go preach and teach and to cast out demons and heal is these 12 disciples now look like the 12 tribes of Israel, that there is a new Israel going out into the wilderness, being led in a new exodus by a new Moses, who is Jesus himself. So both of these things are at work. Jesus is, he's awesome in the way that he thinks through this. But what happens as they go out and they preach and they teach and they're staying in homes and living off generosity as they live in a life of simplicity. Verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Like we just saw at the beginning of chapter six, there are going to be cities and places and people who will not receive the gospel of the kingdom, but actually in fact, reject it. And so he's saying, disciples adjust your expectations accordingly of what following me will entail. Even more, he says that when they clearly reject it, that they are to shake off the dust. It was as an ancient act of protest, of coming judgment on the city that the dust has been shaken off of, that you have rejected God. And so in doing so, you will return to the dust. In verse 12 through 13, they have now heard the commission of Jesus. So they went out and proclaimed that all people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. Did you notice the two-part job description of the disciples here? That they are sent both speaking, that is proclaiming and preaching, repent, This little quick way of saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're going out and saying, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's time for you to change the way you see reality and to follow Jesus as Lord. So they're speaking about the kingdom, but they're also serving in the name of the kingdom. That is, they're casting out demons. They're praying for the sick. They're anointing with oil. They're bringing healing. Disciples of Jesus are called to speaking and serving. We're called to both. What therefore the Lord has joined together, let not man separate. For some of us, we are so prone to separate speaking from serving. Some of us are, you know, apologists, you know, evangelism. We're going to go out and knock on doors and everybody's going to become a Christian. We're going to preach and talk about it all day long. And yet we always hold back from actually meeting the actual needs of the people in our city. Similarly, some of us want to focus nothing on, nothing but the needs of our city. Focus on serving. We're maybe not casting out demons, but we're caring for. We're dealing with oppression. We're going after, and we don't ever speak. What God has put together here is speaking and serving. May we not reject them, but receive them both. In your discipleship groups this week, I would encourage you just to talk through what does in this moment COVID-19, quarantine, social distancing, all that that entails, what does speaking and serving look like right now? What does it look like for us to be a people who are calling and preaching and talking about the arrival of the kingdom while also serving in, in real physical material ways? How can we do both of those things and not neglect the other? So here at the end of verse 13, what have we just gone through is like the top layer of the bread. That's the first story that Mark's given us. This is like the, the crunchy sourdough or like the warm baguette or the sweet and chewy brioche. So there's the top layer. And then now we go into, you'll notice a complete switch. We go into a second story. Let's look what's in the middle, verse 14. Now King Herod heard of it for Jesus's name had been become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said, yeah, he's Elijah, the prophet. And others said, well, maybe not Elijah, but he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So let's stop here. Just notice Mark is continuing that discovering Jesus, who is Jesus theme here. Isn't he? The whole series has been all about who is Jesus, this question. And here we have no longer is it the crowds or the disciples asking it. Now it's the political leaders that are asking it. Because what? They're hearing about this arrival of the kingdom, this work that's being done by his disciples. When Herod heard of it, it says. Now, the more interesting thing here, I guess we could say, maybe not more interesting, but worth noting is not just the question, who is Jesus, but who is King Herod? And why are we supposed to care about him at this point in the story? Now, Herod is actually not a king. He's a Tetrarch. It's an old way of saying he's a governor. He was, uh, his real name just referred to as Herod here was Herod Antipas. His his, uh, daddy was Herod the Great. He's the Herod from the Christmas stories, right? And Herod Antipas is one of his sons. Now, when King Herod uh, died, his big domain that he had been given by Rome to oversee was broken up into three little mini territories divided between Herod's three sons. Herod Antipas, the Herod in this story, got the region that this is all currently happening in. But little King Herod Antipas, and again, not a king, little Herod Antipas, the one that we're looking at in this story, wanted more. He didn't just wanna be a Tetrarch, a governor. He wanted to be king. He wanted to unify all of these regions that Rome has divided to bring back the kind of regions of Israel and the outer lands all under his authority. He wanted daddy's land. He wanted daddy's stuff. He didn't want to share it with his brothers. This man was gripped with greed and pride. And then later on, after this story, he would go on to Rome, ask Caesar Claudius to give him back all three of the territories to unify this land once again, to become kind of like a king over it. And um, Claudius said, no, and in fact, you're exiled. Uh, You're going to the island of Gaul. You're gonna live out your days on this little island here. Now, why is this interesting? is for Mark's original readers, when they read this, that, that what I've just talked about is, is past. And so when they read King Herod, one, he never was a king. And in fact, the only thing that he would be a king of at this point is this little island of Gaul. This is, this is Mark jab. He's being silly. He's being funny. He's provoking and poking at the political leaders of what had been the past few years. For Mark's original readers, they would have read or heard King Herod and they would have kind of laughed to themselves. Yeah, King of Gaul. And so King Herod at this point though, his greed and pride is he hears that there's another little kingdom that's rising up among the Jews. This new rabbi, new maybe prophet, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, something's going on. And so he's trying to figure out who this is. And so what does this lead to? When Herod heard of it, When he hears of Jesus in this mission, he sees Jesus and says, you know what, who it must be? John, John the Baptist, whom I beheaded has been raised. Hmm. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, whom he had married. Because... Uh, For John, what is it? Sorry, for Herod, yeah, he had married married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, so this is, we've just been introduced. If you've been reading through Mark, new information. Up to this point, all we know about Mark was from back in uh, chapter one, verse 14, that John the Baptist was arrested. And now we find out all of a sudden he's been beheaded. So this is, he's bringing us in on this information, giving us this story. But again, what's going on here? Why is Herodias? Why is Herod? Why was John beheaded in the first place? What is what is their beef with John the Baptist? And again, for that, a little more history lesson. You're not gonna have to remember this. Uh, so just, just, but it is part of the story that's worth seeing. History lesson. Uh, you guys are gonna see on uh, the screen right now, a little graphic of the uh, family tree of Herod. Up at the top, you see Herod the Great. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going from memory right now. But up at the top, you have Herod the Great. Herod the Great, like I said, is the Herod of the Christmas stories. This is the one who he's terrified when he hears that the King of Israel has been born in Bethlehem. He sends out the wise men, right? And there's all this kind of stuff that happens. Infants aside, Herod the Great. Herod the Great had a couple of sons. The sons were divided between his first wife and uh, his sister. So you've got this weird divide that's happening within the family where you've got uh, a normal wife and his sister who he marries and has a bunch of kids with. Those sons that go on become some of those kings, like we were talking about, those other Tetrarchs like Herod, uh, Archipelagus, and uh, uh, Philip, I don't have it in front of me. And all of them kind of continue on and they're ruling and reigning. Now, the interesting thing is Herod's brother, Herod Antipas' brother, Philip, you'll see, marries Herodias. On a family trip to Rome, Antipas, Herod, the one of this story, and Herodias, Philip's wife, they fall in love. Passionate love affair. They come home. Herodias divorces Philip and then ends up marrying Herod Antipas. So what's going on when we hear Herodias, what's happening is this is not just, oh, this guy is all, I mean, it's just, this is like Game of Thrones level, like craziness that's happening here. You've got, Herod Antipas, the main guy in this story, who his wife Herodias is not just his brother's ex-wife, it's also his, his cousin. And so they marry and this whole thing is what John the Baptist, this is why John got in hot water with them is he sees this whole family tree in front of him and he's like, oh my God, no way. And the fact that this would be the ruler over the people of God, like he's going back to Leviticus and he's saying this, there's no way that this is the rightful ruler of God's people. And so John the Baptist saw part of his ministry, if you remember, as, as preparing the way of the Lord, was part of that, was calling all people to repentance. All people, you guys come out of your sin, but specifically John the Baptist regularly and most often was not just calling out all people, but but was calling out Herod and Herodias for their sexual sin. He was calling out Herod Antipas for his Evil is what it says in Luke chapter three, not just referring to the marriage, he calls out that separately, but his unjust political rulings. John the Baptist, part of going after Herod's reign was not just calling out Herod and his sexual sin, but the oppressive taxation techniques of his tax collectors. It's in Luke chapter three. And even more than that, also calling out the unjust policing practices of his day. So here's the thing, when we just consider John the Baptist, his work and his ministry, what got him killed within this is there's him calling out that the whole political system of his day was a complete nightmare and mess. And so for him, he sees all of this as being unified. He cannot call Israel to repentance and not call out Israel's rulers for them to repent of their own sin. All this one big thing for him and so what, what happens? Let's keep going in verse 19. Because Herodias, remember that's uh, Herod's uh, cousin, ex-brother's wife, wife, had a grudge against John and wanted John the Baptist to be put to death, but she was not able to, for Herod feared John, knowing that the people saw him as a righteous and holy man and he was kept safe, kept safe in prison, is how we're supposed to read that. Verse 21, let's keep rolling. But an opportunity came. When Herod on his birthday gave a great banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of the Galilee. Think ancient birthday party. This is not candles and birthday cakes. This is a throne room with lots of alcohol, opulent feasts, and often as we can see throughout history, prostitutes brought in for all of the military leaders and nobles and the tetrarch, the king to enjoy. But the story takes an interesting turn in verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to a half of my kingdom. So who is this Herodias' daughter? Historians would later point to this being a a girl at this time by the name of Siloam. Is this is Herod's stepdaughter, slash niece who based off this language of referring to her as a girl, this is before marrying age or so. So here you have this minor young niece. I mean, this is just, it's such a dark scene who she comes in and, and gives, it's a lap dance. It's a strip tease for her stepfather and all of his political cronies. This language of her pleasing Herod brings a sexual connotation. And him in this drunken stupor says, whatever you, I'll give you whatever you want. And he says, even half of my kingdom. He's so drunk, he doesn't even remember. He doesn't even have a kingdom. He's just a governor. And this scene is just, it's dark. Right here in the middle of the sandwich is this moment of like, that these, this is what's going on here. And so after making this bold promise, in verse 24, it continues. And Herodias' daughter, Salome, she went out and she asked her mom, what, what should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And so the daughter comes in immediately with haste back to the king, back to Antipas, Herod, and asks, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and the guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And so immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When John the Baptist's disciples heard of it, they came in and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I mean, this story is just, it, it turns from, I mean, the sandwich that started out, you remember in the beginning of like encouraging kingdom of God advancing. And now here we have this mother's manipulation of her own daughter, to, to sexually arouse and then manipulate her husband, specifically in this act of revenge against a prophet who had called her out and she was frustrated about him calling her on his sin. And, and John the Baptist gets beheaded, He's murdered, killed with his head brought on a platter like some kind of dinner, like some kind of dessert. And here's the end of the life of John the Baptist, the one who Jesus called the greatest man to ever live in Matthew 11, here dies as a political pawn in the revenge lust of a political leader's wife. Here we're in like the meat of the sandwich, this seemingly unrelated story to what we were just dealing with in verse seven uh, all the way through 13. Why in the world, what's going on? It's this story that's, spicy and meaty but tragic and heavy and sickening and then where does where does mark go from here verse 30 the apostles returned to jesus and told him all they had done and taught so do you see the beginning story of him sending out the disciples and then they return back to him? This time, no longer just disciples, but now called the apostles for the first time. It's success and celebration and encouragement. Jesus is likely beaming ear to ear as he hears the stories of his disciples preaching and casting out demons and healing of all they had done and taught, of all they're speaking and serving. And so the bottom bread, just like the top, is sweet. It's exciting. It's encouraging. It's this conclusion to the disciples' story. Do you see the Mark and Sandwich of discipleship, following Jesus, of ministry, of speaking and doing the arrival of the kingdom, people being healed, the gospel being preached, demons being cast out, and right in the middle is this story of political intrigue and martyrdom and death and the darkness of this world. What are the implications of Mark's Sandwich? Why John the Baptist's death in the middle of the disciples' ministry? A couple conclusions as we wrap up. First, Mark has given us this story to show us that following Jesus is a sandwich of what we could put as ministry and martyrdom or preaching in pressure of discipleship and death. Mark sandwiches these two stories to cast a shadow of death over Jesus and his disciples' ministry, that the the shadow of Herod looms over the ministry of Jesus. And the death of John here foreshadows Jesus' own death by Herod as he would be arrested and ultimately killed by Herod and his cronies. That 10 out of the 12 disciples that Jesus has just sent out would all of them also die under political rulers. Even more than that, this foreshadows the past 2,000 years of church history with 70 million Christians dying for their faith over the past 2,000 years and 45 million of them being with just to the past century. As Jesus will say in a couple chapters, Mark 8, if anyone would follow me, let them deny themselves to take up their cross and to follow me. Mark has set this story here to remind you and shape you and help you see that discipleship to Jesus means that there is a shadow of death and persecution and political martyrdom and all of this that looms overhead and it must be received. Now, for some of us, we may not be scared or martyrdom being something that looks like it's around the corner or outright persecution like this, but I would argue following Jesus will always bring pressure from this world, pressure from relational distances as we make it through COVID-19 and and the pressure of just trying to follow Jesus disunified from one another. Having to find the digital connections over screens like this, where it's services online, it's neighborhood dinners that are happening on Zoom, it's, it's Zoom discipleship groups, that the online units of this, it brings pressure. It brings, di- and, I'm, and I'm not comparing this, obviously, to John the Baptist being beheaded. There's a spectrum of this pressure that begins with pressure and ends with outright martyrdom. But the reality is, is I, I for myself, I wonder what my faithfulness, and and maybe this is the question to ask yourself, If, if martyrdom was on the table, what does your reaction to the pressure of this season reveal? If I feel like it's so easy for me to disconnect from the church, disconnect from faith, disconnect from the community and our allegiance to Jesus in the midst of this season, if I found it so easy to let go of all of that because of this level of pressure, what makes me think that I would be able to stand with John the Baptist or with Jesus or with any of the disciples? I'm not discrediting Zoom fatigue, but it is night and day difference between the reality that I find within myself and Zoom fatigue or within our community or communities of, around America right now and how we feel about, no, I've just been in front of a screen all day and I don't wanna do it anymore versus Christians in China whose Zoom is the thing for them. They have no other option. So they gladly log on. Even as we saw this past Easter, if that means doors are gonna be broken down and they will be arrested. And so before we talk about the sandwich, including martyrdom and persecution, I, I don't even think we need that. Like we just need like, we need a tofu version of that because of how difficult we just, we only want the bread. We only want the sweet flourishing ministry. We want to we go, we want the, the preaching of the gospel and the caring for people. But the moment that pressure gets involved, we, we just want to throw out the whole sandwich. This story shows us pressure persecution, martyrdom, the whole spectrum is involved with discipleship to Jesus. And so we have to receive that. Because this story also shows us that following Jesus is a sandwich. It's it's another sandwich of the arrival of the kingdom of God as it comes against the kingdoms of this world. John the Baptist came as a herald of the kingdom, just like Jesus and his disciples, just like you and me saying, prepare the way of the Lord, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance because God is coming and and for us has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in that arrival, if the kingdom of God is here, then it means the kingdoms of the world must repent and turn And that was not just John, like I said, but it was Jesus himself who did not label that to an everybody needs to repent, but calling out those in power on a regular basis. John the Baptist was not the only one who called out Herod. Jesus himself did it. Calling Herod a fox. And not like in the Steve Carell way, a silver fox. He called, he called him out for his sin, called to Herod. Herod was going to do what Herod was going to do. His calling out was the religious leaders who continue to align themselves with political power. And that goes for both sides, both parties right now. Hear me. This is the kind of talk that led Jesus to get crucified underneath the religious leaders and Herod's cronies was him saying, the very fact that I am bringing a kingdom means that your kingdom must repent or it will fall. We have to keep this dynamic in mind as we follow in light of this world. Otherwise, we will far too often, like I said a couple weeks ago, turn the kingdom of God into mere therapy and continue to hold politics as the only way, and specifically not just politics, our politics as the only way that some level of human flourishing is gonna be brought about for those who seek to follow Jesus, we are bringing about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And we must remember that it will bring us against the kingdoms of this world. It happened with Herod and it's happened throughout history. And so all this together means that following Jesus is a sandwich of paradoxes that must be taken together. Following Jesus like Rabbi Hillel's uh, sandwich, is, is this one of all of these different corresponding flavors. There is the bitterness, there is the sweetness, there is the crunch, there is the pain and the fear and the sweetness and the provision and the hope and the despair, it's the whole sandwich. And unlike I do with olives and fennel, you can't pick these things out. It's gotta be received as the full package. Like the soup Nazi in Seinfeld, Mark here is like a sandwich Nazi. He's saying, this is what discipleship to Jesus entails. So are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you really, really sure? This is the question that the sandwich sets before us is are you willing to receive what it means to follow Jesus with the shadow of Herod, the shadow of the empire looming large, to walk in both serving and speaking as we proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so repent, change your way of seeing the world, change your way of aligning yourselves with political powers and unite yourself. Give your full allegiance to the true King shown in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, to serve your neighbor, to serve your community, to bring about justice and peace and shalom and order and love as an administration of that coming kingdom. These are the, and all of the paradoxes that come between that bring difficulty and challenge and bitterness, it's the full sandwich. Are you willing to take it? And the reason why it's willing to be taken, why it's worth eating the sandwich is because as we end, the gospel itself cannot be decapitated. In the sandwich story, Mark is laying the groundwork for the good news that's gonna come later in his gospel. Because here, John's ministry is cut short by a revengeful, bitter politician's wife. And then John the Baptist's ministry seems to end. But because of the fact that his ministry was all about Jesus, his ministry actually didn't stop. Though the shadow of Herod looms over Jesus and would ultimately reach him in just a few more chapters where like John the Baptist, Jesus would be arrested and murdered and laid in a tomb by his disciples. Jesus would not stay there. Herod's fear here of John the Baptist being raised was not actually about John the Baptist, but he, was, he, was, he didn't even know he was saying it he was setting forward what was going to actually happen in Jesus, what would become true a few years later. When Jesus would be raised to life on the third day, robbing Herod and all evil empires of their greatest weapon, which is death. In the end of the story, for Mark's original audience as they're reading this, Herod, the one who called himself king, is waiting on an island in Gaul to live out the rest of his days. And Jesus is resurrected, truly king, sitting at the right hand of God. And John the Baptist, who fell under Herod's sword here, is awaiting the resurrection when the true king returns. And ultimately, Herod himself would die. Ultimately, Rome itself would be overturned. And though messy, In all of this, because we have a resurrected and reigning king behind this gospel and behind this kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ has continued to grow despite the attacks of the world and the failures of the church. Even as Christians are destroyed and as Christians' failures seem to destroy the authenticity and truthfulness of the gospel, Jesus continues his reign, continues to send out his disciples to speak and serve for his kingdom. And so though the sandwich is bitter at times, though there's parts of it that we don't, may not like the taste of, this is the sandwich that's worth it all because this is the sandwich that must be eaten here and now if we are to partake and receive the feast of the lamb and the life to come. This sandwich is the appetizer that prepares us it wets our appetite for when, it, when Jesus returns and all things are made new. And so this is what Mark sets before us today. And the question is, Are you sure, are you really sure that Jesus is worth following all the way into this sort of ministry in life? Let's pray.